Please stand with me if you're able and take out your Bible and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We have the privilege once again this morning to hear from an old friend. If you've been a member of Pacific Hope Church for more than a couple of years, you likely remember Bobby and Cheryl Aldis, who are members here at Pacific Hope. Bobby served as an elder back then. Uh, he's a great friend to many, if not most of us who are here this morning. Now, several years ago, Bobby left to begin seminary at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary down in Kentucky. Uh, he's almost done, but I'll leave that to him to fill you in in a moment. So in any case, we're thankful to have Bobby here this morning to minister the Word of God to us, and I trust will be served well in that regard. So with that, Bobby, we welcome you to the pulpit, and we're glad to have you with us this morning. Now? There we go. Good morning. Good morning. So good to be here. It's been a year already since the last time I stood here, and uh, it went by fast. Cheryl and I flew in last night, and as we approached uh, El Centro, I think it was, over the hills, we were so excited we couldn't contain ourselves because... We love San Diego, we miss San Diego, we love our family, we love our church. You guys are very dear to us, and I um, just want you to know that. Almost didn't come out because, honestly, the reason is I hate saying goodbye. We hate saying goodbye, but um, Kentucky's been real good to us, just real quick. Um, I have one more semester left, so 14 weeks, and then I will graduate December 7th, and then where we go from there... We'll, we'll see where God would lead us, but uh, thank you very much for praying for us, if you prayed for us back there. Um, I'll tell you one thing, especially when we got in town, then we'll get to the word, but you, you just don't know uh, how much in bondage you are to Mexican food until after you leave San Diego. It, I'm not kidding. I had no idea until we got here. We had Mexican food last night. I was like, oh my gosh, I was so in bondage to this. So if you ever leave San Francisco's, you might get some in Texas, but uh, yeah, Kentucky, no. <laughs> Let's uh, take a moment real quick and bow our heads and prepare our hearts to worship the living God and to hear from his word. Our Father in heaven, we now come to the proclamation of your word, Lord. That's why we're here. We need to hear from you. Father, I am not sufficient for this task. And I pray for your grace, God. I pray that you will enable me and strengthen me to proclaim your word as accurately as I possibly can. I thank you for Pacific Hope. Cheryl and I love this church. We love this body. We love Pastor John and the elders and deacons and everyone here, Lord. Thank you for bringing us together again. Now we ask by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit that you would give us ears to hear your word and place a burden on our heart for the lost, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of my classes that I enjoyed really well in seminary has been church history. And uh, in that class, I had to do a paper on an autobiography, a biography of Adoniram Judson. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, the book is called To the Golden Shore. It's a wonderful biography. Matter of fact, some people have said it's the greatest biography ever written, and I wouldn't argue that. It is really amazing. Um, Courtney Anderson, the author, I like how he said 
And as author notes, the first words he mentions in this, is he says, this is a narrative. This narrative is fact. It's not fiction. Because if you read this book and you read about this life of this man, of what he has done for the gospel and all the losses that he has gone through, it's amazing. You can't put the book down. This guy went through deaths and lost wives and children, and it was just complete heartache for him. But the sole cause of him continuing on to do what he was called to do was the gospel. What, what made him do this? Left America at the age of 22, went to India. He wasn't allowed there, so he went to Burma, and he preached the gospel there. I want, I want to read to you what, what happened to him early on. Listen to what Courtney Anderson says. Judson was not saved until he was 20 years of age. He had become a confirmed deist, due largely to the influence of a brilliant unbeliever in college who set out to win Judson to his deistic faith and succeeded. But incredibly, Judson's conversion to Christ was due in large measure to that same deist. After graduation, Judson left home to become a wanderlust. One night in a country inn in his room was adjacent to the room of a dying man. And the moaning and groaning of that man through the long night permitted Judson no sleep. His thoughts troubled him. All night questions assailed his soul. Was the dying man prepared to die? Where would he spend eternity? Was he a Christian, calm and strong in the hope of life in heaven? Or was he a sinner shuddering in the dark brink of the lower region? Judson constantly chided himself for even entertaining such thoughts contrary to his philosophy of life beyond the grave and thought how his brilliant college friend would rebuke him if he learned these childish worries. But the next morning when Judson inquired of the proprietor as to the identity of the dead man, he was shocked by the most staggering statement he had ever heard. He was a brilliant young person from the Providence College. It was the unbeliever who had destroyed Judson's faith that was dying in that room next to him that he heard moaning and groaning. Those words now he, he was dead, he was lost, he was lost, he was lost. And he goes on and says lost like five more times. These words raced through his brain, rang in his ears and roared in his soul. He was lost. There and then Judson realized he was lost too. He ended his traveling, returned home, entered Andover Theological Seminary and soon sought God for the pardon of his soul, was saved and dedicated his life to the master's service. Let me just give you a little quick background on Judson, what he did in Burma. He would spend 38 years giving his life to the Burmese people, translated the whole Bible into Burmese language. He lost three wives, multiple children. He didn't see his first convert come to Christ until after six years of proclaiming the gospel. Six years, the first person came to Christ and was baptized. However, he did not grow weary in spite of losing wives, children, even his own life, Judson had made a an impact on Burma. Matter of fact, sometime after his death, the government had survey recorded that 210,000 Christians, that's one out of every 58 Burmans, came to Christ through Adoniram Judson. So after six years, his first convert, but he didn't give up and he kept on, kept on in spite of all the losses and all the trials and tribulations, kept proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Burma now has a lot of Christians. Let me ask you a question. What are you willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? I did two funerals in two weeks in Kentucky. Last two weeks, two funerals, both, both unexpected. One was a 35-year-old motorcycle accident. The other one was a 70-year-old uh, uh, woman who had a massive heart attack. I knew the boy who died in the motorcycle accident. I didn't know the lady. Both of them were to believe not to be saved. So as you're standing there doing the funeral, the caskets are open and you see the body there. All I kept thinking about is that one day these bodies are going to be raised up to judgment. And these people out here don't know anything about that. 
They don't have a clue about heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. They're playing cards with Uncle John up in heaven. No. They've died. They're not going to get another chance, and they're going to be judged. And that's put a burden in my heart to stand up here and ask, what church are we willing to do? What are we willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? I've asked myself these questions. I want you to ask yourself these questions. When was the last time someone was brought to saving faith in Christ through your sharing the gospel with them? When was the last time that you have woke up and determined that day to share the gospel with a person you did not know? I'm going to wake up. I am determined to share the gospel with at least one person today. Maybe there's a question you can ask yourself now. If you haven't done any of those, are you willing to start today? Are you willing, as the church, to begin to have a burden for the loss so that when you go to a funeral, you know that that person is saved? It's a horrifying event for me. Literally, I mean, I shook up there. I was preaching the gospel during the funeral, and I'm seeing these bodies, and I'm thinking to myself, trying to focus on what I'm supposed to do. But I'm, I'm over here, and I'm like, this, this is just insane. I was scared. I don't ask these questions to condemn you, make you feel judged or anything like that. I just ask them so that it would just like place a rock in your shoe. To, to, to think about it after, after we leave today. Am I doing what I'm called to do? I want to, I, I haven't put up on the board here um, a lyrics to a song. I think you have it, right? No? Okay, let me just read it to you. You all know it. Rescue the perishing. I want to read to you the bridge. As we're playing our songs, while we're singing them well, have we forgotten the lost, the reality of hell? If we say we love God, want to see his will done, will we offer our lives or just the songs we have sung? Do we even care? When will we care? Last Friday, uh, in my personal evangelism class, Dr. Booker had said this, we may sing on Sunday morning, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, but our actions during the week might be proclaiming, I really couldn't care less. Just gut-wrenching quotes. He also said this, and this amazed me. He asked everybody in our class, how many of you attend a gospel-preaching church that you know how to proclaim the gospel and do it consistently. And nobody in the class raised their hand. And what was profound is he said this. I've been teaching this class for 30 years. And every time I ask that question, nobody in the class raises their hand. They know how to proclaim the gospel, but they're not doing it consistently. That's tragic. That's tragic. Do we even care? Do they matter? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, right? This is good and it's pleasing the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God doesn't get his kicks when he sees people not repenting and perishing. He desires them to be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. How do they come to the knowledge of the truth? How are they going to come to this knowledge? Romans chapter 10, verse 13 to 14. For everyone who is called on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that great news? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the problem. Paul continues. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? Question one. How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they going to come to the knowledge of the truth? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says that the church is the pillar of truth. We, the church, have that truth. And we go to them and proclaim that truth. That's what we're going to see in our text this morning as Ryan read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
I think the main point, I believe, is verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. That's the main point. Paul is doing what he's doing because he wants to please God, not man. His desire is to please the Father, to please Jesus, to please the Holy Spirit. This is what he's been created for. This is why he does what he does. So real quick in the setting here, I think there's two things in chapter 2 in Paul writes this letter that he's uh, concerned with. Number one, he's deeply concerned with the young congregation's faith in the midst of persecution. This is a newborn congregation here, and they're being persecuted. And Paul gets out of town quickly. If you look in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just that it has now come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So he's concerned for the congregation's faith because they're under persecution. Secondly, Paul's concerned that their behavior, Paul, Silas's, and Timothy's behavior, might be misunderstood or misrepresented in a way that could call into question the validity of the gospel and their apostleship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan had come in and basically told the Thessalonians that Paul's not an apostle. He's just in it for greed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is our witness. He's defending their conduct and how they acted when they preached the gospel to them. And I think we can learn how to preach the gospel through the Apostle Paul in these 12 verses. So you have your outline here. Let's look at point number one. You don't give up when things get difficult. Do you know that as a minister of reconciliation and you preach light in the midst of darkness, things are going to get difficult. He's not going to lay out a red carpet. He's going to oppose you at every stance. Look at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not in vain. Kenos, the Greek word here, it means empty without, without results. Paul's preaching the gospel to them had an effect Upon them. That, you, that word you is emphatic here. He's saying, You know, you know that our labor was not in vain. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. It wasn't in vain. It brought many people to saving faith to Christ. It started many churches. It took over the whole city. Put a little application here right now. Whenever you share the gospel, it will never be in vain. Ever. Just remember Adoniram Judson. I mean, it took him six years before he got his first convert, but he didn't stop. And look what had happened to the whole country. There were no believers. And now there's over 200,000, probably even more now. You never know what God's doing through your words. You never know. You have no idea what's taking place in the hearts of those you're sharing the gospel with. Yeah, some seeds will fall upon the stony grounds and thorns, but that's not our concern. Our job is to sow the seed, plant the seed. He'll take care of the rest, but without anybody planting a seed, how can it be? You can't grow anything. 
He says here in verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. You can, you can look at that in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas come across a, a woman who's a fortune teller, and Paul's had enough, and he rebukes the spirit out of her, and the people there get mad, and they take Paul and Silas and throw them in prison, and they strip them naked, and they beat them. They flog them. Don't you think that would have been enough to say, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going to do this anymore. Who wants to go through that? That hurts. Can you imagine if Paul would have done that? There would not even have been a church in Thessalonica. As you know, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, but we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So they, after getting beaten in Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, and Paul goes in the synagogue and preaches Jesus Christ crucified, and Jews start to get saved, and they don't like it, and they start a riot. And Paul and Silas and Timothy have to leave town, and they follow them. Even in that much conflict, Paul still proclaims the gospel. You are going to have opposition when you share the gospel. Now, I'm not speaking prophetically here. I don't claim to do that. But church, I'm going to tell you right now, as you already know, there's going to come a time real soon, it's probably already happening now, that you are going to have to decide, am I going to serve man or God? Am I going to listen to man and fear man, or am I going to just obey Scripture and, and please God? It's going to come to that in our culture. You start sharing the gospel, and pretty soon you're going to be arrested. Are you willing to endure that? Those are questions we have to ask ourselves. Remember in Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we read it here, but in verse 3 and 4, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Hopefully it's not a surprise to us. We're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This word granted here, it means freely bestowed as a gracious gift. It's God's reward and endorses believers with the gift of suffering. It's a gift from God to the believer. Enjoy this. It's like my son. You get to share in the sufferings of Christ. It's been granted to you, not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. And of course, 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 10. Hold your place in 1 Thessalonians, but go to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to run through this real quickly, but I want to cover something here. In Matthew chapter 10, here's what you have. In verses 1 through 4, we have the calling of the 12 apostles. In verses 5 through 15, he sends the apostles. So they've been called and now he sends them in verses 5 through 15. In verses 16 through 25, he now warns them. And look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now get that picture. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not a good picture. That's scary. That's death right there. But this is the calling. He calls them. He sends them. He warns them. And look at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, and beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles." When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
Brother's going to deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you, in one town flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those in his household? And then he goes on and talks to them about having no fear. Sharing the gospel is a scary thing. It's difficult. You face many trials and temptations and even death. Are you willing, for the sake of that, to give your life for the gospel? <laughs> then he says here back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we had boldness in our God. Where do you get boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of affliction? Where do you get that boldness? Do you get it at seminary? you get it at a book on how to do evangelism? You just get up the strength to do it. Paul says, no, none of those. But we got our boldness in God. He is our boldness. He gives us grace upon grace, and he gives us strength to do these things, even in the face of death. Acts chapter 4, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Look upon their threats and grant your servant with all boldness to continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in the face of them. This is where you get your boldness. Praying and asking God to give you strength to do that. Ephesians chapter 6, 19 and 20, and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew. Paul knew fear. I mean, he's human just like us. He understood being afraid. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, verse 3. In weakness and in fear and in trembling. He understood that. This word weakness here in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, it means without strength. It's in a state of limited capacity to do something. In that condition, he spoke. And in fear and in trembling, it means quaking or quivering with fear as bespeaks great timidity. In that condition, Paul declared the gospel. Look at verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 2. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Their motive was to please God, not men. Their message was not popular. It's not popular in the eyes of men, but they dare not be unfaithful in the eyes of God. This is what I'm saying. There's going to come a time, a moment where you're going to have to decide, am I going to serve man or am I going to serve God? And the message that you have to speak is not going to be accepted in their sight. That's offensive. You're a hater. It's because they can't see. But how are they going to be saved unless they hear of the good news? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, seeing those dead bodies going to be raised to judgment one day, that persuades, that, that, that motivates. I've, I've got to tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want people to be saved. When we present a message to seek people's favor or praise, what ends up happening is we lose God's approval because he sees our hearts, and we're going to give an account for what we've done in this body, whether good or evil. He sees our hearts. Point two, you speak the truth in love, 
and you also give yourself in love. Look at verses 5 through 8. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from the people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We didn't share the gospel with you by using flattery words or grease or praise from man, but on the contrary, we shared the gospel with you by being gentle, caring, and loving, all to please God. Instead of using apostolic authority, they used the most kind and gentle methods to win them to Christ. Turn over me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And let's start in verse 19. Paul declares to the Corinthians, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I, win, that I might win more of them. Let me read that to you again. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And then he explains what that looked like, being a servant to all. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became a weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What do you have to become to win your neighbor? What do you have to, to be to win your coworker or, or a family member? What do you have to do? Paul says, I do this all for the sake of winning them. I, I want to share this life that, that Christ has given me. I want to share it with them, and I want them to be in heaven with me. Isn't that wonderful? I, so because of that, I made myself a servant to all. I just did a funeral uh, Thursday, and... Um, the family called me in the room, and they said, uh, we want to talk to you. I don't know them. And they said, you're not going to do this uh, fire and brimstone stuff, are you? And, and I just said, and I understood what they're saying, but I said, can you explain that to me? What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, we attended a funeral, and this pastor or the minister took the Bible and just clobbered everybody over the head, and everybody got mad at stuff that he was saying. And I, I, and I understood that. He was probably like uh, John the Baptist. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come at a funeral? So, so I, I said, no, I, I, I don't talk that way. However, I shared with them exactly what I was going to say. I was going to share God's judgment, and I was going to share their sin. But I said it in a way where they were able to hear it, to where when I was looking out there, I could see faces going, they're They're, they're listening. They're not walls are up and stuff like that and just bashing them over the head. You speak the truth in love. This word gentle, epios in the Greek here, means mild or easy. It's like a nursing mother. And you mamas out there, you understand what that's like. In fact, epios here was frequently used by Greek writers as characterizing a nurse with a trying child or with a teacher with troubled students. Any of you teachers out there, and you just got students that just get on your, your mind, and they just cause us, ugh. This is what this word gentle means. Mamas, when, you, when your babies are newborn, and they, they, they cry every hour, and, they're, and, and you're wanting to sleep, and you've got to give up and give them a bottle, and you feed them, and you hold them close to you and stuff like that. This is what Paul is saying. This is how, how we, we, we treated you when we came and proclaimed the gospel to you, we were like nursing mamas. We were gentle with you. And since it's Father's Day, I'll go easy on you dads, but hopefully you're, you're, you're helping mamas out. You see, many unbelievers will not hear the gospel presented to them because they're presented in a very mean and overbearing way. 
They're clobbered over the head. Nobody wants to be told that they're a sinner in need of God's grace. And I'm not saying you change stuff here. You tell them the truth, but you speak it in love. You speak to where they'll be able to hear you. We don't water down the message at all. We do not water down the gospel. For our appeal does not spring from error and purity or any attempt to deceive. We don't do that. We just speak the truth in a way that they can hear it. We don't avoid them because they're a little timid. We proclaim the gospel to them. And we tell them of the good news. Come. Dr. Bucher said to me, do we really understand what it means to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? If we truly believe in the reality of heaven and hell, we cannot say we truly love someone if we refuse to share the gospel with them, end quote. We have people in our lives that we, we feel timid by. We maybe tried before, maybe stepped out a little bit, and we've got a little growl or bark back, and, and we've just been timid. We just shy away. What he's saying here is, if we truly love that person, we're going to continue to preach the gospel to them and find ways that we can get that across to them and not be afraid of them. Do you have family members like that? Maybe it's difficult ministering to family members. I remember when I had to do it to my dad who was dying. It wasn't easy. I was scared. See, because we don't want to be uncomfortable, we just don't say anything. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine Jesus. Let's talk about a family member that's not saved right now. I want you to imagine Jesus calling you to the great white throne judgment, and your loved one has passed away, and he is being sentenced and cursed to hell, and you're able to stand next to them and hear that. And your loved one turns to you and says, why didn't you say anything to me? I want you to picture that. Because many of us in this room have family members that are not saved. And we're timid of them. We're afraid. We're afraid of what they're going to say, how they're going to look at us. Well, you might get rejected. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, father's going to deliver son and stuff like that, and children are going to kill parents. I mean, this stuff happens. He brings a sword. But can you, I, I couldn't live with myself knowing that a loved one has just been sentenced to hell, and they look at me right before and say, why didn't you say anything? See, because I was afraid or I was fearful, it's not going to cut it. This is why we need boldness. Corey Tim Boom, near the end of her life, someone asked her, Corey, how would you describe your life? What did you really live for? And she responded with this little poem. When I enter that beautiful city and the saints all around me appear, what a joy when someone will tell me it was you that invited me here. That's her life. That's her life. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Ryan read Acts chapter 20 here this morning. I do not account my life as dear to me so that I may finish the race. I mean, Paul, what Paul's saying there is, my life means nothing if I don't preach the gospel. Christian, you are here this morning, and you're breathing. Thank God. Why has he kept you alive? Is it to work and get a paycheck? Is that, is that what this is for? Share the gospel. Meet people. Give your lives to them. Tell them of the good news that you have, the hope that's in you. And then he says here, getting back to our text, I'm being so affectionately desirous of you. This means longing for someone passionately and earnestly and being linked to a mother's love. It's intended here to express an affection so deep and compelling as to be unsurpassed. Now, we know Paul here is like being a pastor and it's how pastors are to care for their flock. But we can, we can do this when we're sharing the gospel with people. Not only do we speak the truth in love, but we share our lives. What do I need to do? How about invite them to church? How about calling them or texting them or send them an encouraging email or whatever it might be. 
I was affectionately desirous for you. You know what? It, it, this is what it really means here. It's like a parent yearning for their dead child. Mama just longing to be with that child. This is Paul's heart for the lost. Do we have this kind of affection for lost people? Listen to what Paul speaks about his fellow Jews, and you know this well, Romans 9, 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers according to the flesh. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I were just accursed so that they would be saved. And Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Douglas Stewart said, and I quote, the single greatest reason we fail to witness is that we do not possess the compassion of Christ. Not because of fear. We fail to witness because we fail to possess the compassions of Christ. John Vassar, one of the great evangelists in Boston, once knocked on the door of a woman's home and asked her if she knew Christ as her Savior. He was going door to door. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Here's her response. She said, it's none of your business and slammed the door in his face. You got that before? It happens. Hold on. He stood on the doorstep for a period of time and he wept and wept over this woman's condition. She looked out the window and saw him standing there weeping because of her. And the next Sunday morning she was in church and she said it was those tears. She couldn't get away from those tears, end quote. Where are our tears? Where, where are our tears for lost people, for lost humanity? When did we last weep over them? When somebody slammed the door in your face and said, I don't want to hear that. It has been well said that people don't care how much you know until, until they know how much you care. And these Thessalonians knew how much Paul cared because he not only spoke the truth to them in love, but he gave his life for them. He poured into them and taught them, and trained them, and loved them, and nourished them, even though they were pains. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, our third point. We walk the talk. This is so important, church. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The Thessalonians and God were witnesses of how Paul and his companions lived among them. This word blameless here, it means without defect or blemish and thus describes not being able to find fault in someone or something. How important is our life when we go to teach the gospel? We go to share the gospel. What are they seeing in your life to make it even be attractive? They set an example for the Thessalonians, and now he is telling them to do the same. Look at verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You cannot expect the lost to come to faith and show them Christ when you're not even living like Christ. It's important how we live. It's important that we're holy, and it's important that we're walking the talk. When we're talking about sin, we're taking an inventory of our lives. Are you doing that? 
Because if you're not, it's not going to be a message that they want to hear. This is why most lost people think of the church as a bunch of hypocrites because all are not showing them Christ, they're showing them the world. Why would I want to want to come to church? All you do is argue with your husband or your wife. You gossip constantly or you, you, you get drunk in bars. Why do I want to be a Christian? What, what's so good about you? I don't see anything in you that makes me want to be attractive to that. Our lives matter. Are we holy? Are we washing our hands? Are we watching our tongues? Because if you're not walking the walk, it's going to be very difficult for you to go and speak to somebody about being a Christian when you're not living that. You hear what I'm saying? Paul did. You're my witnesses, and God's my witness. You knew how we conducted ourselves in the midst of you. We were blameless. You couldn't charge us of anything. Can they say that of you? I want to read, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go over to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read you verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in you, church. It's the hope of glory. It's the hope that they need to see. That's what's going to bring them when they see that hope in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, for this toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's discipling. It's inviting them to church and letting them see your life and laboring with them. Do they see Christ in you? Which is the hope of the nations. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do they see this light in you? Or are you the hope of Christ in you, that light, or are you just putting a blanket over it? It's a city set on a hill. It's, it's the light that draws the nation to them, to Christ. What, what are you doing with your light? I pray you're not hiding it under the bed. What good is that? Take your light and go out into the darkened world and let them see that light through your lifestyle and through your words and through your love and through your compassion. That's going to draw them. That's what the church is. Do your family members, neighbors, coworkers see this hope of you? Do they see Christ in you? Do they see love, joy, peace, patience, and all the fruits of the Spirit? Or do they see strife and jealousy and fits of anger and all of this? It's very important that our lives would be holy. Let me close with this. He ends in verse 12. Worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He calls you in to his own kingdom and glory. If you're here this morning, maybe you've never heard this message before of the gospel. Maybe you've heard it before, but you just, no, nah, it's not for me. Would you hear it fresh and new this morning? God is calling you through my voice. 2 Corinthians 5.20, God making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal. God is reconciling you to himself by not counting your trespasses against you. He's counted your trespasses against his son. This is why we stood up and sing this morning of what a great savior Jesus is. 
Your trespasses he has counted to his son. And if you would just believe and receive this free gift being offered to you, you will be saved. Isn't that good news? God will forgive you of all your sin and give you eternal life, and then you will not have to endure this awful wrath that is soon to come. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. For those believers here this morning, I pray it's, it's, it's a burden placed in your heart that the Holy Spirit took the words of Scripture, the voice, and planted a desire in your heart for lost people all around you. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go to hell unwarned or unprayed for. Let's pray. Father, only you can place a burden in our hearts for the lost. Lord, seeing those dead people at their funerals was not a good sight. I pray, God, this morning for the church that we would rise up and we would do what we're called. Maybe you have called some to missionaries like Adoniram Judson. I don't know. I pray that you'd make it clear in their souls. But God, you have called us all to be ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of Christ. We have a message. It's not our message. It's your message. And we're just a messenger. God, would you please place a burden in our hearts so deep that we would not be able to go another day without sharing the gospel. That you would help us to overcome all fear, timidity, cowardice, and that you would give us boldness in the Holy Ghost to proclaim your truth. And like Corey Tim Boom, seeing many people in heaven saying that she invited them there. Lord, what a joy it would be to, to be in heaven and see people that we had no clue came to Christ, but they would come up and say, do you remember when you invited me here? I pray, God, that you would just do your work now on our hearts. Press it heavily upon us. Help us to weep over the erring one. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.